This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk The Adventures of Ulysses by Charles Lamb Chapter 5 At the stern of his solitary ship Ulysses sat, and steered right artfully. No sleep could seize his eyelids. He beheld the Pleiads, the bear, which is by some called the Wain, that moves round about Orion, and keeps still above the ocean and the slow-setting sign Botes, which some name the Wagoner. Seventeen days he held his course, and on the eighteenth the coast of Phycea was in sight. The figure of the land, as seen from the sea, was pretty and circular, and looked something like a shield. Neptune, returning from visiting his favourite Ethiopians, from the mountains of the Solymi, descried Ulysses ploughing the waves, his domain. The sight of the man, he so much hated, for Polyphemus's sake, his son, whose eye Ulysses had put out, set the god's heart on fire, and snatching into his hand his horrid sea sceptre, the trident of his power, he smote the air and the sea, and conjured up all his black storms, calling down night from the cope of heaven, and taking the earth into the sea, as it seemed, with clouds, through the darkness and indistinctness which prevailed. The billows rolling up before the fury of all the winds that contended together in their mighty sport. Then the knees of Ulysses bent with fear, and then all his spirit was spent, and he wished that he had been among the number of his countrymen who fell before Troy, and had their funerals celebrated by all the Greeks, rather than to perish thus, where no man could mourn him or know him. As he thought these melancholy thoughts, a huge wave took him and washed him overboard, ship and all upset amidst the billows, he, struggling afar off, clinging to her stern broken off, which he yet held, her mast cracking in two with the fury of that gust of mixed winds that struck it, sails and sail-yards fell into the deep, and he himself was long drowned under water. Nor could he get his head above, wave so met with wave, as if they strove which should depress him most, and the gorgeous garments given him by Calypso clung about him, and hindered his swimming. Yet neither for this, nor for the overthrow of his ship, nor his own perilous condition, would he give up his drenched vessel, but, wrestling with Neptune, got at length hold of her again, and then sat in her hull, insulting over death which he had escaped, and the salt waves which he gave the seas again to give to other men. His ship, striving to live, floated at random, cuffed from wave to wave, hurled to and fro by all the winds. Now Boreas tossed it to Notus, Notus passed it to Eurus, and Eurus to the west wind, who kept up the horrid tennis. Them in their mad sport, Ino Leucothea beheld. 
I know Leucothea, now a sea goddess, but once a mortal, and the daughter of Cadmus. She with pity beheld Ulysses, the mark of their fierce contention, and rising from the waves alighted on the ship, in the shape like a sea-bird which is called a cormorant, and in her beak she held a wonderful girdle made of seaweeds which grow at the bottom of the ocean, which she dropped at his feet, and the bird spake to Ulysses, and counselled him not to trust any more to that fatal vessel, against which god Neptune had levelled his furious wrath, nor to those ill-befriending garments which Calypso had given him, but to quit both it and them, and trust for his safety to swimming. And here, said the seeming bird, take this girdle and tie it about your middle, which has virtue to protect the wearer at sea, and you shall safely reach the shore. But when you have landed, cast it far from you back into the sea. He did as the seabird instructed him. He stripped himself naked, and fastening the wondrous girdle about his middle, cast himself into the sea to swim. The bird dived past his sight into the fathomless abyss of the ocean. Two days and two nights he spent in struggling with the waves, though sore buffeted and almost spent, never giving up himself for lost, such confidence he had in that charm which he wore about his middle, and in the words of that divine bird. But the third morning the winds grew calm, and all the heavens were clear. Then he saw himself nigh land, which he knew to be the coast of the Phaeacians, a people good to strangers, and abounding in ships, by whose favour he doubted not that he should soon obtain a passage to his own country. And such joy he conceived in his heart, as good sons have that esteem their father's life dear, when long sickness has held him down to his bed and wasted his body, and they see at length health return to the old man, with restored strength and spirits, in reward of their many prayers to the gods for his safety. So precious was the prospect of home return to Ulysses, that he might restore health to his country, his better parent, that had long languished as full of distempers in his absence. And then for his own safety's sake he had joy to see the shores, the woods, so nigh and within his grasp as they seemed, and he laboured with all the might of hands and feet to reach with swimming that nigh-seeming land. But when he approached near, a horrid sound of a huge sea beating against rocks informed him that here was no place for landing, nor any harbour for man's resort. But though the weeds and the foam which the sea belched up against the land, he could dimly discover the rugged shore all bristled with flints, and all that part of the coast one impending rock that seemed impossible to climb, and the water all about so deep that not a sand was there for any tired foot to rest upon, and every moment he feared lest some wave more cruel than the rest should crush him against a cliff, rendering worse than vain all his landing. And should he swim to seek a more commodious haven farther on, he was fearful lest, weak and spent as he was, the winds would force him back a long way off into the main, where the terrible god Neptune, for wrath that he had so nearly escaped his power, having gotten him again into his domain, would send out some great whale, of which those seas breed a horrible number, to swallow him up alive with such malignity 
he still pursued him. While these thoughts distracted him with diversity of dangers, one bigger wave drove against a sharp rock his naked body, which it gashed and tore, and wanted little of breaking all his bones, so rude was the shock. But in this extremity she prompted him that never failed him at need. Minerva, who is wisdom itself, put it into his thoughts no longer to keep swimming off and on, as one dallying with danger, but boldly to force the shore that threatened him, and to hug the rock that had torn him so rudely, which with both hands he clasped, wrestling with extremity, till the rage of that billow which had driven him upon it was past. But then again the rock drove back that wave so furiously that it reft him of his hold, sucking him with it in its return, and the sharp rock, his cruel friend, to which he clung for succour, rent the flesh so sore from his hands in parting that he fell off and could sustain no longer. Quite under water he fell and passed the help of fate. There had the hapless Ulysses lost all portion that he had in this life, if Minerva had not prompted his wisdom in that peril to essay another course and to explore some other shelter ceasing to attempt that landing place. She guided his wearied and nigh-exhausted limbs to the mouth of the fair river Calico, which not far from thence dispersed its watery tribute to the ocean. Here the shores were easy and accessible, and the rocks which rather adorned than defended its banks, so smooth that they seemed polished of purpose to invite the landing of our sea-wanderer and to atone for the uncourteous treatment which those less hospitable cliffs had afforded him. And the god of the river, as if in pity, stayed his current and smoothed his waters to make his landing more easy. For sacred to the ever-living deities of the fresh waters, be they mountain stream, river or lake, is the cry of erring mortals that seek their aid, by reason that, being inland-bred, they partake more of the gentle humanities of our nature than those marine deities whom Neptune trains up in tempests in the unpitying recesses of his salt abyss. So by the favour of the river's god Ulysses crept to land half-drowned, both his knees faltering, his strong hands falling down through weakness from the excessive toils he had endured, his cheeks and nostrils flowing with froth of the sea-brine, much of which he had swallowed in that conflict, voice and breath spent, down he sank as in death. Dead weary he was. It seemed that the sea had soaked through his heart, and the pains he felt in all his veins were little less than those which one feels that has endured the torture of the rack. But when his spirits came a little to themselves, and his recollection by degrees began to return, he rose up, and unloosing from his waist the girdle of charm which the divine bird had given him, and remembering the charge which he had received with it, he flung it far from him into the river. Back it swam with the course of the ebbing stream, till it reached the sea, where the fair hands of Ino Leucothea received it to keep it as a pledge of safety to any future shipwrecked mariner that, like Ulysses, should wander in those perilous waves. Then he kissed the humble earth in token of safety, 
and on he went by the side of that pleasant river, till he came where a thicker shade of rushes that grew on its banks seemed to point out the place where he might rest his sea-wearied limbs. And here a fresh perplexity divided his mind, whether he should pass the night, which was coming on, in that place, where, though he feared no other enemies, the damps and frosts of the chill sea air in that exposed situation might be death to him in his weak state, or whether he had better climb the next hill and pierce the depth of some shady wood, in which he might find a warm and sheltered though insecure repose, subject to the approach of any wild beast that roamed that way. Best did this last course appear to him, though with some danger, as that which was more honourable and savoured more of strife and self-exertion than to perish without a struggle the passive victim of cold and the elements. So he bent his course to the nearest wood, where, entering in, he found a thicket, mostly of wild olives and such low trees, yet growing so intertwined and knit together that the moist wind had not leave to play through their branches, nor the sun's scorching beams to pierce their recesses, nor any shower to beat through, they grew so thick, and as it were, folded each in the other. Here, creeping in, he made his bed of the leaves which were beginning to fall, of which was such abundance that two or three men might have spread them ample coverings, such as might shield them from the winter's rage, though the air breathed steel and blew it as it would burst. Here, creeping in, he heaped up store of leaves all about him, as a man would billets upon a winter fire, and lay down in the midst, rich seeds of virtue lying hid in poor leaves. Here Minerva soon gave him sound sleep, and here all his long toils past seemed to be concluded and shut up within the little sphere of his refreshed and closed eyelids. End of chapter 5